Hello, folks. This is Matthew, your host. We've got a great episode for you, but I wanted to make a quick announcement first. Um, <coughs> the, forgive the cough there. That's kind of part of the point. I've gotten fairly sick recently. Might be COVID. Might be something else. Not sure. Testing's been weird. Um, but between that and some other stuff, I'm going to be taking a brief hiatus, a kind of semi-hiatus with the podcasts for a little while. I have a couple episodes that I'm going to try and record when we can. Um, but I'm going to kind of go on a bit of a looser schedule, do it when my voice is able to, um, when also kind of, you know, some of the medications I'm taking, head's a little fuzzy, makes things a little harder. And of course, as the strike goes on, I've been doing my best to keep giving you good content, but I want to make sure that we're not just coming up with an episode just to have an episode. Uh, with the writer strike ending, that is going to be changing some things, which one of the podcasts being released this week that you may be listening to right now on Superhero Ethics is definitely going to be addressing. Um... And, and so that is going to open up some doors, but of course, with the actor strike still going on, I'm going to respect that picket line. So we're just going to be kind of taking a hiatus for a little while. Um, there will still be some episodes coming out from time to time. I'm just not going to try and have them exactly on a weekly schedule. Please, though, if you've been a fan of this, I promise we're going to be coming back soon. Um, <clears throat> definitely some new episodes will be coming out. I've got some content in the works. We're just not going to be quite on a weekly schedule anymore for couple weeks, maybe a month or two while my health improves and also while we figure out what's happening with the strikes and really hoping after the writer strike that now the actor strike is going to come to an end soon, but we'll, we'll see what happens. I'll have more news for you, uh, probably at least in a month or two. Hopefully by then we'll be back to a regular schedule, but if not, I'll give you some more news, but, uh, please just stay subscribed. I promise more content's coming soon. Thank you so much. And here's your episode. Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. Folks, as you know, if you've listened to anything I do, I have been 100% behind the strikes happening in Hollywood, as has all of the True Story FM network that this podcast is a part of. Well, we all know that the WGA strike has come to an end, somewhat. There's a couple of bureaucratic steps to still go through, but where looks like real progress has been made. And myself and Andy Nelson from the podcast network, who's been a frequent guest on this show, a screenwriter with a lot of information on this topic, are going to be talking about what is the strike? What, what does this deal that's been made mean? What are the next steps? What does this mean for SGA? And when can we go back to talking about all the stuff that's coming out the way I used to? So Andy, why don't you say hello and introduce yourself? Hey, everybody. Yeah, this is Andy Nelson from True Story FM, uh, also host of The Next Reel, uh, Marvel Movie Minute, which you've joined me on for a full season, which was mm -hmm. an absolute blast, and uh, Movies We Like. And uh, yeah, just uh, love uh, working in podcasts and uh, you know getting stories out there. Great, great. Well, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, Andy was present the last time we were dealing with some Hollywood labor issues. Uh, to talk about some of that stuff. And so I'm really glad to have you back. And let's just kind of start at the very beginning. Um, the, all over the news, we've seen the headline of the WGA strike is over. What exactly happened? Yeah, I mean, this has uh, kind of been a long time coming, right? I mean, the last uh, big strike of the WGA was in 2008. And they didn't have anyone else striking with them at the time. You know, the fact that SAG-AFTRA ended up striking at the same time, I think, helped. But also, I think society's shifted a little bit. But this was really a, um, a kind of a fight to get the system to change because it really hasn't been changing. The mm -hmm. AMPTP or American Motion Picture Theater and uh uh, television producers, I can't remember exactly what the acronym is, but they um, they really have been always 
reticent to make these changes. You know, back when the last time there was a strike, the writers wanted more residuals coming from uh, DVD and Blu-ray sales, and and they were. Uh, AMPTP was like, well, we we're not sure. This might just be a you know something that's uh, you know we don't know how it's going to actually affect things, so we don't feel comfortable giving any money from it. And of course, they ended up getting a lot of money from all of that. Mm-hmm. And now the same thing has happened with streaming. And again, the producers uh, guild was pretty much telling them, you know, we don't know the streaming thing. It could just be a flash in the pan. So let's just see how it goes. And it's been that way since it started. And finally, the writers were really pushing to get some changes with the the deals related to streaming. And that became the kind of the critical point for them to want to get all of this changed. And then, of course, suddenly, right as the strike was starting to happen, all the conversation around AI and and what, uh, you know, what programs like ChatGPT could... Mm-hmm provide in the realm of writing um you know popped up in the news quite a bit and turned into something that they were like you know what we need to address this as well yeah Um, along with a few other issues but i mean those were two of the big key issues that the writers really wanted uh to address yeah i think it, it it's not that long ago but it seems like it you know five six months ago one of the big things we were discussing was all of the AIs that were creating art and like that they were, you know, that were, were they stealing from artists and which in many cases they clearly were in terms of like they would often reproduce artist signatures and things like that. And, and I remember that conversation kind of getting what, as you were saying, like all the AI conversations kind of wound up getting woven into this conversation about the strike. So, so what has happened now? What is the big news that we're all talking about? Well, I mean, it has been uh, this shift, and it's it's actually really interesting. The writers ended up, uh, you know, it, it ended up kind of being a perfect story of a David and Goliath. And I think a lot of it is the writers adapted to society and societal changes a lot faster than the Producers Guild did. And when you see all of these writers taking up on TikTok or or you know the Instagram stories or other places, Twitter, wherever they happened to be having the conversation, they were really open and transparent, letting their uh, anyone who was following them, letting them into this world of why things have been progressing the way they've been, why it's been so unfair, why writers' rooms are kind of a disaster right now, the way mm-hmm. they're set up. And the Producers Guild never was able to kind of catch up with that. You know, they really were playing by old an old rule book. And, you know, when you have people like Bob Iger uh, being interviewed at, I can't remember what, what it's called, but that huge, you know, mega money summit that they do up at some camp in Idaho every mm-hmm. year. And he uh, is just, the way that he's approaching all of it and the way other producers would produ- pr- uh, approach it as far as um, just, you know, oh, we're going to make them wait months until they're losing their houses. Like they're approaching it in a way that wasn't making the American public feel like let's side with these producers because these writers are taking away our entertainment. Everybody ended up kind of siding with the writers and nobody was feeling sad about these big corporate overlords that were running these um, studios. And uh, so more and more people were favoring changes to support the writers. And so 
the the um you know the producers guild ended up having to give in quite a bit they didn't give out on everything but still the writers walked away uh, the WGA was saying it was an exceptional deal. All of their minimums are getting increased over the next uh, three years. Like every year, they'll get an increase on their salaries. Mm-hmm. And again, it's it, the way that these work, it's a three-year contract. So who knows? We may be going through the, all this again in two, 2026. But for now, at least we know they're going to be getting increases over the next three years. They're getting more uh, contributions uh, put into their um, health and pension and um, for them and when it's a writing team uh they've had a lot of rules established about ai yep. they've got um employment um uh, terms that are improved in order to as far as like the number of drafts when they're working in writers rooms things like that and they didn't necessarily get all of the residuals that they were asking for from streaming services you know these streaming services notoriously won't let all of the details out as far as how they're actually doing. Right. But they still did get some good concessions from that. And I think that's, uh, I think for them, that was a a very welcome uh, element to show that there potentially is a door opening on that Mm -hmm. and could help in the future because now they're going to get viewership-based streaming bonuses on releases for the first 90 days of their release. And so they will be getting some of that information so that they know how the stuff's doing and they can get bonuses on that, which is, it's it's a really great step forward. Mm -hmm. There's a lot there that I want to get into. And um, we're going to get into the details of it in just a second, as you started to allude to. But I wanted to start with what you were saying about the, the public relations battle here. Because as you said, I think the writers just did such an incredible job of understanding how to talk to people I have to imagine some PR departments or PR people for the big studios are not unemployed today because, like, I mean, the studios are making horrible quotes. Everything from the, you know, a- a- as you said, we want to starve them out to the, uh, I think it was Bob Iger who said that um, all these demands are unrealistic and are just impossible, most of which were then not completely accomplished, as you said, but were done far more than the studios had said they would ever allow. There was that issue of the trees being cut down. You know, there were just all of these things that the studios did that was so easy for the writers to spin as just looking like, you know, the worst of cor- corporatopoly uh, happening out there. And this is all happening at a time when there's been a lot more attention to, to union and, and labor. Uh, you know, we've seen strikes at Starbucks and Amazon and, and things like that that have garnered a lot of public attention. And it really felt like the studios just did not understand the public sentiment and are, you know, didn't give up everything that they didn't want to give up, but but certainly gave up quite a lot. Yeah, I mean, they absolutely did. And it was um, it was really nice to see that they made these concessions. And it was... It was funny because, you know, you had these moments where like Zaslav, who is the head of Max right now, um, he released their, uh, or, you know, what he said was going to be their quarterly losses with mm-hmm. all of the stuff going on. And the writers came back and said, that's already uh, more like what you're saying that you're losing this quarter is more than what you would have lost had you just agreed with us. Yeah. And I mean, that's the sort of thing that like the writers were able to latch onto so quickly. Like you could see that Zaslav was probably trying to, uh, you know, get his uh, all of the investors and everything uh, riled up 
in the in support of their corporate interests without realizing that the writers would come back right away and say you already had a better opportunity than what you just announced if you had just taken this and that is exactly the sort of thing that these big studio heads just weren't uh you know paying attention to and it really you know i think it really hurt them and it's it's interesting to see that these corporate interests were um they just weren't I, I don't know. It's it's almost a surprise that they weren't playing it smarter. You know, it, it's mm-hmm. like it's like they uh, don't really have a clear sense of act, how things are actually working. And I, I think right. that speaks to the way things had been playing for so long. You know, where people had just kind of been going along with the flow, even though it wasn't in their benefit, only to you know have something like this um, happen. And then these studio heads are like, oh, crap, I guess people don't really like us that much. Yeah. Well, and in terms of that, how much do you think the double whammy of it being both the writers and then the actors also going on strike? When SAG-AFTRA went on strike, I think about six weeks or so after the writers went on strike, um, which I, you know, the, their, the, the contracts versus the directors and the writers, the actors are, are spaced out about a month apart. I think it's somewhat intentional so that, it, they they can sometimes support each other like this. How much do you think the actors also going on strike put even more pressure on the on the uh, companies? I mean, absolutely a huge factor. Mm-hmm. You know, they they hadn't gone on strike at the same time since 1960. Yeah. So it had been a long time since several of the unions had shown this much support to make these changes. I I don't know if the actors would have jumped on it quite so readily if it hadn't been for a lot of these specifics. Like, you know, again, streaming services, the fact that streaming services are so... Um, kind of conspiratorial and secretive with their numbers. And then the AI thing. And actors have been, you know, long kind of up in arms about uh, kind of the stealing of performances and everything. And and I think that those two key things really push the actors to want to join. I can see why the DGA perhaps didn't jump into it. You know, the directors, mm-hmm. I, I don't think are... Um, quite as concerned uh, necessarily about the AI. Like they don't have that necessarily tied up in their elements as much. And they're probably already, because it's a director as opposed to a whole bunch of actors, they likely are, you know, have some better deals with some of the, mm-hmm. um, their contracts in the streaming services. I don't know that for sure. I'm just speculating, but I, they, their, after their negotiations, they seemed to kind of concede relatively, relatively quickly. But it is, I think, a huge benefit that the actors and writers were all out there striking at the same time. Because that also, you know, really reduced the amount of um, uh, opportunities people had to, uh, to kind of continue working. I think when we had the 2008 writers strike... The writers were on strike. They weren't working in the writers' rooms. All of the uh, late night TV shows, uh, like the talk shows and everything, had shut down. But if a film had already been written and had already been greenlit, the production company could still move forward and act. The actors could still promote those projects. And so it made it harder for the writers to get what they wanted. As soon as we turned that corner and the actors also went on strike, suddenly, like actors couldn't promote any projects that they yeah. were a part of if it was related to one of these uh, studios. 
And all projects pretty much shut down, like everybody in Hollywood kind of came to a, a grinding halt. And But again, I think it was really the opinion, or, or not the opinion, the attitude of the, the way the studios were behaving that made all of those people who were affected outside of SAG-AFTRA and the WGA, like all of the IATSE members and, mm-hmm. and the Teamsters and everyone else, less in less in favor of the studios and more inclined to support the writers and actors. Yeah. I think it's very true. And I certainly think that you know, if you if you follow Hollywood closely, if you if you care about these things, they're probably, you know, writers who you pay attention to, but I think for most people who enjoy movies and TV shows, there might be one or two writers' names who are household names, but certainly their faces aren't necessarily ones you see all the time. And I, I think that the so many actors take – well, certainly a number of writers did do very successfully on TikTok. Adam Conover is kind of the one that I think of the most. Having all these actors now who were much more recognizable, who did have 4 million followers on their Twitter and their TikTok and things like that, having their – like I think that that fed in really well because, you know, you already had the writers – were really good at writing, writing the heck out of, you know, one lines on, on Twitter and stuff like that to respond to anything the people put into. And then all the actors now being able to be on the getting a lot more press attention and a lot more, you know, public notice and just better known, it all just kind of came together really well. Yeah, and I think another thing that worked very well in the favor of the um, the writers and actors is when you had these independent production companies like A24 mm-hmm. make deals with them to get exemptions to continue working on projects. <clears throat> and so like A24 would work with the unions so that they could say, you know what, let's we'll keep working. Whatever gets worked out in the end, we will abide by those rules. Uh, we just want to keep working on these projects. And that became like a flagship in the in the scope of how producers, writers, actors, directors, everybody can work together yeah. and show respect for the creative work that everyone is putting into the projects in order to deliver stuff that was fair, providing fair compensation for everybody. And I think that was... A, another key thing that um, not only did it make A24 look really good, but I think it showed to a lot of these people who are outside the Hollywood system, it can work. It's just, it's making these bigger companies look that much greedier Yeah. when you can see it can be effective. Yeah. No, I think that's really true. Well, so let's talk about the actual details of what happened. Uh, as I mentioned, like it isn't 100% official yet. So the first step that happened was that an agreement was made. The boards of the two unions voted to uh, – in one case, it's a board. In the other case, it's a council, WGA East and West, voted to uh, ratify this new deal. And now it's going to the union members themselves. Voting opened uh, – we're recording this on the 3rd of October. Uh, voting opened on the 2nd of October and I believe closes on the 9th of October. So it is not 100% official yet. But my understanding is at this point the – there was, it's so much of a win, and the the leadership is so in favor of it. it it's pretty much assumed that these are going to pass in the unions, correct? Correct. Yeah, I mean, everybody seems very supportive of it. I mean, everything. When I hear from writers on Twitter, I mean, they're um, parroting all of the um, 
the the quotes saying this is an exceptional deal that we're getting here. Like everybody seems very thrilled that they were able to get mm-hmm. so much from the AMPTP. Yeah. I mean, I think that the if they had gotten everything that they wanted from their demands, it would have cost the AMPTP four hundred eighty eight million a year. Um, AMPTP came back with a deal. This was back in May. Their deal would have only increased it by $86 million, so a huge cut. Mm-hmm. What they ended up uh, conceding to with the WGA is, uh, is a deal that essentially gives the WGA members $233 million a year. So they're getting nearly half of what they had asked for. Which uh, And what's more important is there are elements in it that allow for um, I, I suppose more open doors next time they're negotiating. Right, right, and I think that's a huge part of it. And also, as you said, this is harder to quantify. But they also won really big on the artificial intelligence questions. And I wanted to kind of go over that quickly because it, it yeah. gets very complex. And I, I'll admit I don't understand all the details because uh, a lot of it's very c- computer based. But the, this is again quoting from Variety. First of all. AI can't write or rewrite literary material, and AI-generated material will not be considered source material under this agreement, meaning that AI-generated material can't be used to undermine a writer's credit or separated rights. So what does that mean exactly for for what the writers are doing? I I think what they're really pushing at is if you're going to have a creative property, you actually have to hire a human writer to write it. They did provide a concession. And see, this is there's there's this line with AI that I think the writers smartly were working with that AI is a tool. And when used by somebody who knows what they're doing with it, it can help in a lot of great ways. If a writer, and this is part of the concessions, if a writer chooses to use AI to help with their writing and the company agrees to it, they can do that. But they they can't, and this is the key thing that you were just saying, they can't just have a writer submit a script and then the studio can't say, thank you very much, here's your check, go your merry way, and then take that script, plug it into chat GPT and say, rework this to, uh, you know, do this, like to, you know, to um, make, you know, make sure we have, uh, we're meeting all of the concessions as far as the number of Mm -hmm. uh, minority and women characters, or, or to, uh, to increase these characters' uh, roles, or you like to really kind of just take the script and have AI make all of those changes. That is completely not allowed. And that's what the writers really didn't want. They don't want the right the AI to be viewed by the studios as their handy little writing tool in their pocket that they can just have instead of hiring a new writer to do rewrites on a script. Right. Yes, and I think that's what's really important. The um, uh, not this article, but another one I read uh, made the comment that this means that like we'll not be seeing Siri or IBM Watson getting a uh, Emmy award nomination at any time. It's going to have to still be the writers, uh, <laughs> right. and and most importantly, I think uh, or. And, and as one additional thing, the WGA reserves the right to assert that exploitation of writers' materials to train AI is prohibited. Uh, and right. that reserving the right is that so it means that it's also – because I think one of the things that was hardest about this whole conversation is – and as I think – I may have talked about it with you or with someone else on an earlier podcast. In a lot of ways, this is kind of similar to when digital music was first happening. And there was all these legal cases about what what happens to ownership when it's all digitalized and things like that. And – Part of the problem is 
how do you make laws that gov or rules that govern technology that doesn't exist yet? Because we don't we're we're just at the cusp of AI. We have no idea what AI is going to be able to do in five years. And to me, the fact that they both won these concessions now, but also have won the right to continue to say in the future, wait a minute, this new thing that no one conceived of when we were writing this agreement is also exploiting the writers in these other ways. That's not okay either. It's a, it, it is a tricky line. And I think a big part of it is just acknowledging that, um, yeah, that it's, well, I think a hard thing is acknowledging the AI isn't doing it on its own. It's not just this, this robot that's just sitting there saying, Ooh, I'm going to take this script and rework it. It is very specifically greedy uh, AMPTP members, studio heads, who potentially are looking at this as, we'll just say, a tool for ill use, where mm-hmm. they would potentially use it to cut the writer out and to just have the have the AI rework something. And that's, I think, the danger. And I think, as you said, that whole idea of the um, uh, the not allowing writers' material to be exploited by training AI is a very, I mean, it's an important line to have in here. Yeah. It's also a tricky line because, I mean, it's important for the WGA members. My understanding and my reading of it is that it is, uh, I, I, I don't know where it stands as far as non-WGA members. Mm-hmm. And that's where I wonder, like, because you also hear complaints right now, lawsuits already happening with authors like Stephen King and and all of these other authors who have found out that their books have been used to train AI, right. where you could actually potentially have, hey, rework this so it sounds more like Stephen King, like that sort of fear that a lot of these people are having. I don't know where this line in the agreement stands as far as as that goes. And so I hope that it is something that can be used to keep them from from saying, well, you know, I mean, like, I'm just using Stephen King as an example. I know he's an author. I know he's also written screenplays. So for all I know, he is a member of the WGA. But let's just assume for the purpose of this conversation that he isn't. And let's just say, I hope that this still allows them to say, we're not going to allow Stephen King's material to be used to rework this AI. And that one, I think, is probably going to also have a lot of other effects throughout other in other artist communities. Like I, like I said before, with visual art, there have been some similar concerns, though there isn't really a union of like graphic designers and the like. But, you know, it, it's known that there are some AIs where you can say – Make me a logo for my business in the style of, you know, you know, Picasso, or I, I would quote some modern artist, but I don't really know any modern artists. Forgive me, it's um, not my area of expertise. But and that, you know, to the point where, as I said, like sometimes they reproduce like the artist's own signature, and I think that that's uh, in music. There's also the same kind of thing, like you know, write me a song that sort of sounds like a cross between Paula Abdul and Beyonce, you know, or or whatever it might be, and so. Um, I'm going to be very curious to see, you know, you and I are both primarily interested in the film and, and TV and on-screen media, but I'm going to be very interested to see how do some of the other um, uh, areas of artistic expression react to this in terms of what are their rules going to be. Uh, you know, like I said, there's no real artist, there's no real union for graphic uh, uh, graphic artists, but there certainly are for, you know, music producing and, and things like that. So it'd be very interesting to see what re- repercussions this has. 
Well, and you know, it goes, uh, you know, I, I support using AI as a tool for people who are using it to kind of explore things. I think there's a yeah. lot that can be gained from these tools and a lot of shortcuts that can really help people get the job that they're trying to do done even faster and, um, and provide new things. But yeah, there, there are going to have to be some uh, things put into place that kind of are dealing with this sort of thing. I think an interesting example of AI used in an artistic way in recent times is the opening credits of uh, Secret Invasion, mm-hmm. where they actually, I, I'm not exactly sure how they did it, but I'm guessing because they had like, they knew who the cast was, they knew what the story was based on, they probably were able to use some of the AI tools and incorporate images from the comics, images of Samuel L. Jackson and the other actors and the characters that had already been shown in some of the previous works and kind of create these very interesting and terrifying images that they use for, I think, very effective opening credits. And I think that's a great example of how artists can use those tools to create something that is very effective for the project that they're doing. But again, it's those lines. Like if they said, let's do all this, but AI, do it in the style of Wes Anderson, um, and then Wes Anderson spits that out. Like where's the line that we're crossing with that, you know? Yeah. No, I totally agree with you. Totally agree there. I want to talk just a little bit more about the writer strike itself, and then kind of move on to uh, the the actor strike and how these things all tie in. Because I haven't seen any discussion of this, and one of you have thoughts on this. Um, one of the last things that happened before this settlement, uh, but that really drew a lot of attention to the writer strike again, was when Drew Barrymore and then later uh, Jennifer Hudson and and one other person who, whose name escapes me. Uh, decided that they were going to break the strike uh, and go back to producing their show. And Drew yes, Barrymore Bill, was... Bill Maher was the third one. Bill Maher, thank you. Uh, she was the first, and so I think she got the most attention and uh, negativity, and she got quite a lot of it, including got uh, disinvited from, I think, presenting at a, a, a book awards uh, event and, and some other things. And both she and then also Hudson and Maher all pretty quickly decided, nope, we apologize. We're not. We're going to go back to supporting the strike. Do you think that the because there was a very strong sort of public outcry against this? Do you think that that might have been kind of one of the last straws of the studios seeing like that there was an attempt to can we you know you know ignore the strike and it got shut down so quickly that that might have been one of the things that pushed them back to the table. It's entirely possible. I mean, you know, it was a talk show. It was something that all, all of these were talk shows. And to a certain extent, they were, you know, trying to show, you know, maybe we can still come back and do our work. We're not going to be hiring any writers. Uh, and, you know, we're, or not, we're not, we're not, we're going to just do it just ourselves. And the reaction from, everybody, a lot of their own members uh, really kind of um, made, I think the WGA and SAG-AFTRA likely buckle down all the more. I I think that the studios, um, I don't know if this really would have changed the the results as to where we landed, Mm -hmm. but I do think that it was certainly a sign showing the studios that the writer's the actors, they're not backing down. This is incredible solidarity they're showing right now. 
they like these three people who have very different types of shows appealing to very different types of audiences all ended up conceding right away and and saying you know that's uh i don't think that we're going to be able to get past this yeah yeah so it's definitely a big deal so one more uh positive thing there and i just want to kind of end this part by lifting up that you know one of the things that one of the attacks that you saw a lot and some from people who are just anti-labor, but I think a lot of this was supported by those uh, producers, was the, oh, look how many millions these these big uh, writers make. And certainly that attack is being made on the uh, actors even more so. And I think one thing that's really striking is not only did a lot of these, act- these, these writers who were making tons of money, who have tons of money already, although it's a much smaller percentage than it is of actors – um, st- stand up with the strike and often talk about like I'm not fighting for me I'm fighting for everybody else um, so that they can become me uh, you know or, or just survive but that some of them also went to great lengths to support it and and in particular the one that I know has drawn some media attention that I want to lift up uh, Drew Carey uh Never the he he you've probably seen him as an actor. He's the host of Price is Right. He's the host. He was the host of Whose Line Is It Anyway for a while, um. And, but he's been a writer as well for quite a while. Um, he wound up um at two different restaurants in Hollywood, Bob's Big Boy and Swingers. Uh, apparently, basically like any any member of the WGA could go in and get lunch for free, and I think with their families as well. And he did it throughout the strike. It cost him almost half a million dollars, which the man makes $12 million a year. So it's not hurting him too much. But it really was an incredible gesture. And I know a number of other writers, Shonda Rhimes especially, also did quite a lot to contribute to you know, the funds that were helping helping prevent what the studios said they wanted of starving these, starving these writers out. Yeah, that's, it's important <clears throat> to see that some of these big – People. I mean, you know, there were him, people like him. There were people like George Clooney, who was donating funds to their to the um, you know the support funds for all the people who are on strike who needed some money. Because I mean, we're as as people outside of the Hollywood system, often seeing all of these big actors in the movies and everything, and hearing how much they're making, like twenty five million dollars for this movie or whatever. Like they're making incredible sums of money for the movies that they're participating in, but we're not. Uh, these aren't really about those actors. Like yeah. those aren't the people who are striking saying, I want 26 million, not 25 million. It's all these people who are the day players, who are the uh, the people who are the, um, the, you know, the actors coming in on just a straight contract who are contributing their own work. And same thing with the writers who are contributing and working on these projects, but aren't the names that we're hearing. I mean, there are thousands and thousands of people involved and they're just trying to make sure that these studios are not uh, kind of abusing the system to get, um, to get what they want and to make more money while all of these people get worse and worse deals. It's just, it really has become a very broken system. And so it's been time for a while for something like this to, uh, to just start getting them into a place where the, the, the base agreement, and that's really what this all is, is just like working on the minimum base agreement is, you know, fair and, and growing with the times as it should. Yeah. Um, for those who are fans, you know, both the on-screen stuff but also of sports, it's been the same kind of question with a lot of the recent sports unions going on strike. 
the most recent uh, major league players uh, strike, I know, you know, again, there the top players are making huge salaries. And even I think the league minimum in the um, uh, uh, major leagues, baseball, is several hundred thousands of dollars. But, you know, they were striking in large part about the minor leagues and what's going to happen with the minor league salaries and stuff like that, as well as like, you know, the health, the health care for, you know, in the NFL, that was one of the most recent strikes. It wasn't even about salaries. It was about, sure, someone might come up and for one year get, you know, league minimum of $400,000. That's more than most Americans are ever going to make. And that's a great salary. But then they're going to suffer a major injury that's going to, you know, have health care needs for 50 years. They're only they're not going to play in the NFL anymore. <clears throat> and they don't have any health care. Um, you know, so yeah, it, it just goes around to all this. And it's it's really heartening, I think, to see those people who are at the top really reaching down and, and using their power to help. So yeah. and speaking of that, so, oh, go ahead. No, no I, I was just gonna say, I think it's interesting that this union, um, I, I don't want to say that it has spurred on other unions to do similar things. But I think it's interesting to see these two unions fighting and then the auto workers are fighting and you know there's other unions that are are looking to take on these issues because there has been such a shift over the last several decades of kind yeah. of corporate interests working to make more profits and uh, and not providing those who are actually working to actually uh, get fairly compensated for what they're doing yeah, many, many eons ago, my first career was as a labor organizer, and I'm still connected to a lot of those worlds. And I saw some great analysis um, coming out of some of that. I was talking about how, you know, the the rising tide of kind of like the Amazon strikes and the Starbucks strikes and things like that had gotten a lot of public attention, and that probably helped set the scene for the writers and the actors' strike. But then those strikes, which were, again, like, you know, if your individual Starbucks isn't on strike, it's not going to affect you. You know, you don't interact on a daily basis with the people who are sh- at the, the the Amazon shipping center. You just see it come to your house. But we all watch TV. We all watch movies. And so, you know, it's kind of like these strikes were made possible by other labor unions. But also now, yeah, they're really just, you know, tur- turbo shooting right into the labor union movement and helping to inspire the auto workers. And yeah, it's just for lefties like me, it's a great day. Um, once yeah. a- Let's talk about the actor strike and how does this affect that? Because I, you know, it may well be that if the writers had gotten a sweetheart deal and the actors hadn't, the actors would still go on strike. But I think their move to go on strike was all like the ground was really set for them by the writers. A lot of the actors had already been on uh, the picket lines with some of the writers. Where does this leave the actors now? I, I mean, I think it leaves them in a good place, you know, seeing what concessions they, uh, that the AMPTP ended up giving to the writers, the actors are asking for a lot of similar things. They want the same general wage increase every year so that people are uh, recovering from all the inflation uh, from the previous contract term. They want um, uh, protection of their images from AI. They don't want to have these deals. I mean, you know, some of these studios have been offering people uh, to come in and say, we want to scan your likeness and uh, then we get to use it forever. It's ours. Yeah. We can do what we want. And that's just you know completely bogus. And so they're trying to cut that. They're wanting to um, make sure that they're getting the right um, hair makeup professionals to uh, to help them uh, so they look uh, so they look right. And, right. And, you know whether they're on the 
uh, the principal actors or whether they're background actors. And um, they're wanting to, again, the whole issue with the streaming services, they want to make sure that they're getting compensated. Yeah. And a lot of that is uh, goes to these projects that it's designed as a theatrical release. Everybody kind of signs on for it to be a theatrical release. And then it never gets a theatrical release. It goes straight to streaming. And they want to make sure that these um, these studios aren't saying, well, you don't get any residuals because it never had a theatrical release. It's just straight to streaming. And you don't get residuals for that. Whereas they're making all this money because everybody suddenly is jumping onto their streaming services to watch them. And it's just not going to, you know, they don't want that anymore. Um, they want to make sure they're getting the right support into their um, health and retirement funds. Uh, they want to make sure that um, if they have to be relocated to to go somewhere for a project, that it's uh, for like a, a series or something that they're getting paid for relocation and all that. So right. you know, a lot of the a lot of the similar things. A lot of it more specifically designed for actors, but I think they're probably in a pretty good spot because of what the writers got. Yeah. You did a great job listing all of the, um, the the concerns there. The only one I wanted to kind of uh, go deeper on was what you mentioned about the hair and makeup. That in particular, that's a real concern for non-white actors where you know yeah. um, different kinds of hair can require different kinds of expertise or um, just the way light hits different shades of skin and how that shows up on camera. You know, you might have the makeup skills to really expertly make a paler face come out, but someone who's you know darker skin is is it's a different skill set, or it can be a, a different kind of skill set. Wanting to have people who have that training as well. So, right. yeah, <laughs> and and the, and the studios have kind of said we'll let, we'll do this, but just for the principal for performers. We're not going to yeah. do this for background actors, and that's still something that they're um, you know trying to work on. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. Very much so. Very much so. So, have we heard any official news about negotiate? Because last I'd heard negotiate, the the uh, studios were still saying they weren't even going to negotiate with the actors' union. Has that changed at all? Do you know any updates there? I, I don't know if I've heard of any updates um, as far as as where we stand on all of that. But mm-hmm. I I just think that. They're probably in a place right now where I, I don't know. This is just my guess. They're they're trying to get everything worked out and locked down with the WGA, and then they'll they'll jump into their final, hopefully, final negotiations with SAG-AFTRA. Now, one thing that I think a lot of people might be confused about. I know I was somewhat confused about. Um, you know, I think a lot of people that are, the way they understand labor unions working is that when one union is on strike, the other unions have a commitment not to break the picket. Uh, and I, clearly that's not the case here because it seems like, you know, the writers are returning to work while the actors are still on strike. How does that work? I mean, I, I think that there are elements where uh, they feel things are potentially moving in um, in the right direction. And mm-hmm. so I think that they feel a little more comfortable with that. I, I mean, I was just looking at it did say as of recording that they actually supposedly met yesterday for oh, bargaining good. and so it is possible that things are kind of moving forward i don't there, i don't have any update on that but it is entirely possible that things are definitely moving forward in a, a positive direction which is allowing them to kind of um 
I, I don't know. I guess that's a good question. Like why, um, you know, why are the WGA members allowed to kind of go back and work um, and not stand in solidarity still? But I guess it speaks to just the state of the system, like, you know, directors are working, but is, is are they going to be working on something that's actively um, uh, potentially in in right. conflict with what the actors like? Maybe writers will be hired to work on new scripts and new projects, but would they, you know, they're not going to be jumping in to, um, you know, work on a show that is um, trying to hire scab actors to come right. on board, you know? Yeah, because there are different phases of the production, so I could totally see that, that writers are going to work on new stuff, but they're not going to go on to an active set where they say, hey, can you, we need a better joke for this line, that kind of thing. Right, so. right, right. Yeah. Now, bringing it a little closer to home, uh, I know you and the whole rest of the, the True Story FM um, network, but you you know, you and Pete are, are, are um, you know, uh, grand leaders. Um, that's a terrible phrase. Uh, you know, <laughs> you and Pete are, are, <clears throat> are fearless leaders, uh, and you've been very clear that True Story is 100% in favor of the strikes and all the – in favor of the strikes and stands of the unions. Where does this leave us now? Well, I think as far as like um, people producing uh, content, critics. I mean, they've always said, you know, you know, critics. There, we're not keeping critics from doing what they want to do. These sorts of podcasts and stuff. We're still allowed to, through the whole strike, allowed to do stuff unless we felt we wanted to just kind of hold and support it and of solidarity and everything. Um, you know, we have kind of continued the shows, but we've always been voicing the. Um, the approach mm-hmm. that we support the unions and we would love to see them through get through this and uh, and I think a lot of it is um, just wanting to get to a place where everybody is working again and you know I think a big element that happened last time the writers went on strike in 2008 is it created a huge rise in reality shows where they felt like you didn't need writers um, and that I think was part of the writers' struggle that time is that they found ways to work to create content without them, mm-hmm. and it was the unfortunate increase in popularity in shows like The Apprentice that perhaps led to where we are today. Um, who knows? But regardless, I I think that sure there have been some of those, but at the same time, I don't think I think that the way that the system has shifted so far away from just like cable TV into so many of these streaming services, there still are plenty of reality shows out there. Yeah. But I, I haven't heard anything about this increased rise in that. I just know that there are a lot of projects that have been sitting by the wayside because the writers and actors have all been on strike. So I think what it means for us is perhaps over the next few years, we're going to have some content uh, slow down as mm-hmm. we kind of hit the point when those projects w- would have been released and all of these projects that kind of got pushed back we're going to end up having a few years after that so like yeah. the dune 2 and and you know big projects like that that the studios held right which makes a lot of sense and I, i'll say two things there one just in terms of the union stuff yeah i, I really appreciated that true story has always had a position of being very strongly in favor of the unions, but also letting each of us kind of make our own decisions. And in a lot of ways, I think I'm one of the podcasts that is most focused on 
new, newly released media within our network. Like a lot of us are looking at kind of older media or different things like that, or you're looking very in depth at one piece of media, like the minute podcasts. And, you know, as you said, the, the rules were that like, you know, it was one set of rules for critics, one set of rules for content creators and podcasters sort of had to figure out where we sort of fall. There's an extent to also which, um, you know, I've always felt that my believing that my podcasts were one of the ones that the unions were caring about was somewhat delusions of grandeur. Um, but, you know, <laughs> I, I took the stances that I did and I will probably continue to not cover struck media. Um, one thing that I'm finding – I'm seeing more and more stuff coming out that the that the SAG is being very clear that that animation that um, uses voice acting that is not part of the SAG after a strike um, because that uh, voice actors are a different area. So I may go back to start covering some of that stuff now that the writing is unstruck. But I really I think I think True Story has been doing the best thing it can because this is a really interesting time right now in terms of like you know when they put. It is kind of a side issue, but I think it was really interesting that when they put out those rules, you know, and they said, like, influencers do this, content creators do this, critics do this, a whole bunch of us were like, where do we fall? Like, there's this whole <laughs> industry that's blossomed of podcasts and, you know, fan art and all this kind of stuff that's sort of like, you know, where where are we all going to fit? So um, I, I, I really appreciate True Stories stand there. And just on the reality shows, so I only know about this because I have a good friend. Let's call him Bat. Um, uh, and my good friend really likes reality dating shows. And my good friend really got into reality dating shows and follows a lot of the creators. And according to my good friend who follows all of these, one thing that has happened is that reality shows are actually now less and less – not that they were ever 100% reality, but there are more and more writers who are working to – not write the line by line, but are saying, let's have this conflict and then let's have the next scene be this conflict and this conflict. And I think that's part of it is that today, or at least my friend thinks that are today, the part of why we're not going to see another huge influence of reality shows is that they use a lot more writers today than they, they did when it was first created. And I, I think when they were being created, that's always been part of it, but mm -hmm. it generally had been the producers who would kind of... Um, artificially create stories saying, right. well, it's more interesting if you're having a conflict with this person. So, uh, you know, try to act that way, you know, and, and try to kind of push things that direction. And so they would always kind of like be playing puppet master behind the right. scenes. And it makes sense that inevitably they would hire some writers to help with that. And yeah. I, I think that depending on budgets for the various projects, I think you're going to see it's still working both ways. Uh, you know, cer certainly plenty of them where it's still producers who are kind of playing puppet master behind the scenes, telling uh, the, the quote, actors what to do. But I think at the same time, um, those that have a little bit uh, of a bigger budget likely are have a writer's uh, I don't know if it's necessarily writers' rooms per se, or just writers on board to kind of help craft scenarios that puts yeah. them into situations that audiences will be more drawn to. My, my understanding is that the yes, the friend is me. I it's a guilty pleasure, but I love that. <laughs> um, and the part of my understanding is that it used to be that they would just put the people together, 
episode one or two, they would start seeing what would happen and then the producers would – but that now today, it's more the writers are saying, OK, we need to get someone who's going to be kind of the jealous possessive one and we need to be someone who's going to be the – no one expects them to portray someone but they – like it's that level of kind of having shifted from in production r- puppet mastering to let's actually specifically design the puppets in advance. So yeah. Right, yeah. right. The ins yeah, of reality TV right here for you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it, it, what they've realized with all of it is it's all entertainment-based content, and they want mm-hmm. to do everything they can to make it as entertaining for its audience as possible. And if that means that they have to bring on more people for that, then they will do that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, so I think we've kind of covered a lot of the big things. Um I, I mentioned the thing about voice acting and animation, and that's kind of a whole separate topic. But I, I do know that there was uh, an, an effort, I believe, specifically at Warner Brothers DC, which does all the, the DC animation, which has been really good, especially compared to some of the DC movies, uh, to unionize there. But that otherwise, voice acting has still been kind of outside of all of this. Um, do you know any more about that or have any more thoughts on, on kind of where that – that like because as you said, this is kind of a great time for unions to start trying to step up. I don't know if this is going to push them to try to be more incorporated into unions. I mean, it's the thing with these unions is they cover a lot of different things that actors can yeah. potentially be involved in. I mean, it's not just films or TV shows. It's also commercials and video games and animated projects and documentaries and audiobooks And like they cover anything that could potentially have an actor. And so this particular strike may be just working on particular elements within all of these various contracts they have with all sorts of different types of organizations that don't fall under AMPTP. Yeah. And so uh, I think what happens though, when a strike like this changes a lot of the rules, I'd like to think that it's going to um, help open those doors with all of those other unions and groups that they're working with to look at those rates and say, well, let's see what we can do here to help make that a little more fair on this as well. Yeah. I know there's definitely an effort right now within the video game industry. Those actors, I believe, are even either trying to organize a strike or or talking about something like that. And, you know, to someone of my generation, Andy, you might feel the same. There's a part of me that like, to me, video games, I still think of like Pac-Man. And so what do you mean voice actors are going on strike? But if you've, you know, it, in March, part because of the TV show, I wound up playing through the video games of The Last of Us, and the voice acting there is incredible, and is a huge part of what makes those games really kind of, you know, we're, the, the days of it just being like, you know, press the buttons to make the cool thing happen, a lot of these video games are becoming just new ways of of telling powerful narratives with great writing and, and often great voice acting. So, yeah, it's wonderful to see that all these people are being, you know, kind of relegated. Uh, are, are being well, not relegated, but you know, being uh, accepted and understood. Well, and uh, you know, fingers crossed that this helps other groups within Hollywood that aren't covered by unions, like visual effects artists, mm-hmm. find ways to build a system that is, um, whether it's a union or a guild or alliance or whatever it is that that helps them get better fair working conditions and uh, paid. Uh, in fair ways based on the amount of work that they're providing. I don't know. That's that's one group I'm really curious if there will be changes. Like, is the visual effects industry going to have 
a big push to unionize after these strikes finish. Yeah. I mean, certainly the you talked about how great the effects were at the beginning of Secret Invasion, but I know a lot of graphic artists were really upset about that because, you know, the, the, there was the idea of like, was it helping them in their jobs or taking away from their jobs? And so that I could see that being a push to be like, we need a union to at least have some sort of agreement about who's going to get paid when 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 they use the, the AI like this. So. Well, and that's and that's always a trick. And this is one of those lines with AI that I think speaks to it being a tool. It's like, you know, did were there artists complaining when uh, somebody that like when they would do something by hand and then somebody came in who did it in Photoshop and used that tool in Photoshop to create something that the studio liked even better and wanted to use that instead of a, an art by hand, like in some ways, what the AI tool is providing in something like that, it is still an artist who is creating that art. It's just they are using the AI tools to kind of create the art. And so it's such a, there's such a line with tools and how they can be used. And I think that's, I think, part of what the conflict is. And, uh, you know, to a certain extent, I'd say some people, um, are going to need to learn how to use these tools so that they don't end up becoming extinct. But at the same time, I also acknowledge that there need to be some some intrinsic understanding of how these tools can grab yeah. or, or what they're being trained with to actually create that stuff. And that's, I think, those are those uh, those squishy lines that I think need to be firmed up a little bit. Right. Yeah. How, how do you how do you train people so that they're still the ones helping to run these tools? So the tool isn't replacing the job, but certainly a tool. You know, we're not worried about you know protecting the jobs of the people who make the very best horse and buggies anymore. You know, it just yeah. technology is going to advance, but you find technologies to advance not to replace workers, but to better support workers. Um, yeah. I, I I my understanding of this is always kind of shaped by I had a good friend when I lived in California going to grad school. Uh, he was in school for graphic design, and this was like 15 years ago when Pixar was still like the fresh, hot new company in animation, and he got a job at Pixar, and he was so excited. This was going to be the the graphics animation, you know, computer uh, drop job of his dreams, and he was one of the animators on Happy Feet in that – I think I, if I remember correctly, his job was that like, you know, in all those scenes where there's hundreds and hundreds of penguins dancing, um, he was in charge of making sure that all of their left feet, like the shot where they turned facing sideways to facing forward, just their left foot. And it was basically, yeah. as he described it, an assembly line for two years of just someone would give him the frame after the last artist had worked on it. He would make the exact same change he'd made and hand it off to the next artist. And Today, a lot of that might be done by computers, but I'm sure there's like I a lot of people who work in animation talk about it, is that it's like a, it's not creative in any way. It's an assembly line, and it feels like working on a factory assembly line in often really awful conditions. So yeah, it's all these things need to be unionized and and or you know at least need need to have that possibility and need to have the possibility of the work being treated really well. Yeah, and I mean I think that speaks to just art in general because I imagine that you had similar situations in hand-drawn animation with Disney in scenes with I I just trying to think of something with a lot of things something like the 60s version of 101 Dalmatians where oh, yeah. you know Disney notoriously also not uh, a union fan but had a lot of different people and just basically, okay, you just got to, your job is to just basically 
sketch this these puppies. Now your job is to go through and put all the dots on them. And it still is that very much assembly line thing, but it boils down to um, however it's getting done, doing it in a way that's just fair for the people who are doing it. Right. Because I think like there's going to be assembly lines and that's fine. I think in many ways his his concern was he was presented this as a, look, you're not going to get the best working conditions or the best salary, but it's this creative job. And it wasn't. And so it was like, well, if you could put me on an assembly line, treat me like an assembly line worker and give you some basic, you know, union union ideas. So, well, yeah. this has been such a good conversation. Uh, any last things you want to add, yeah. Andy, before we start to wrap up? <laughs> no, I just think uh, it's exciting to uh, to see how things are changing. And it's nice to see uh, so many people in support of making these changes to to help these systems shift to provide uh, you know, I mean, it's it's always going to be a fight between the two sides, but it's nice to see that it's shifting in a way that looks like it's going to be helping people at this point, and it, it's exciting to see. Yeah, no, it really is. And I I remember when the strike started, and the 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 production companies were being so you know adamant about holding a line. I was really concerned that uh, they might win, and so seeing that this has gone this way and having similar hopes for the 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 actors, it it just feels much better. Well, um, for your members, please Absolutely. stick around. We're going to have a little bit more. We're going to talk to Andy about uh, some, you know, uh, th- things we've been exploring during the strike in terms of non-American productions and things like that, as well as if there's going to be another version of uh, Doctor Horrible. But uh, for those who are not going to stick around, Andy, uh, where can people find more of your work? Yeah, I mean, you can check out all the shows that we do over at TrueStory.fm entertainment related or non we've got all sorts of podcasts that we produce over there um specifically i am a part of the next real film podcast we're in our 13th season we've been doing that one since 2011 and each episode we talk about a film and uh, we do them built in series so right now over you were looking at the five nominees from the 1952 Academy Awards for Best Black and White Cinematography. A lot of really interesting films to talk about in that category. And uh, then also Marvel Movie Minute. You can look at the shows that we've done. We did, we've did. we finished all the films from phase one, just having wrapped up the Avengers uh, a few months ago, uh, which is great. So a lot of conversations uh, breaking those movies down one minute at a time. Hundreds of episodes to tune in there. Awesome. And then we have another show called Movies We Like, which actually um, invites a guest from the industry to talk with us about one of their favorite movies. Uh, oh, nice. Recently, we just had Academy Award winner uh, costume designer uh, Deborah Scott, who did Titanic and the Avatar films and uh, lots of big, big films. Uh, she came on to talk with me about one of her favorite films, uh, which is the 1986 uh, film with Robert De Niro and Jeremy Irons, The Mission. Oh, nice. Yeah. I remember seeing that as a kid and really liking it. I haven't seen it since, though, yeah. but might definitely try to go back and see it. Very well, powerful film. And, of course, um, you can find my podcasts on True Story FM, uh, uh, both this podcast and the Star Wars Universe podcast. Uh, you can find all that on the website, which is in the show notes. There you can also find information about how to become a member of this podcast. Um, membership is only $5 a month, and it gets you access to the bonus content. It gets you access to ad-free content, and it helps support this podcast. I love doing this, but it's a lot of work, a lot of love that goes into it. It helps helps keep the lights on around here. It helps support the whole True Story Family podcast. But also, um, I'm no Drew Carey. It's not going to be quite that amount, but we are giving 25% of all the money that comes in as membership. Um uh, directly to the strike funds. We're going to keep doing that. And I will say that that is, um, you know, I have a, a deal with 
um, true story that they get part of my membership fees, and they're also so they're also donating their their portion of my membership fees as part of that. So we're all just going to do our part. If you want to help support the the strike because the strikes are still going on. They may all be over by the time this airs, but still support this podcast, support all of our podcasts by signing on to be a member. Um, and of course, we also love feedback. Uh, send us feedback on Twitter, email, Facebook. Uh, one of these days, I'm going to pick which Twitter alternative I'm going to jump ship to. I think it's probably going to be Blue Sky, but kind of want to see a little bit how more things shake out. But if you've got a way you want to talk to us, let us know. And of course, the best way is the Discord. The invitation to our Discord is in the show notes. I love talking to fans there. I'm happy to talk to you there, and you can talk to everyone else in the True Story family of podcasts. But also, if you want us to talk about your comment on air, we'd love to do that too. So on behalf of myself, Andy, thank you so much for listening. We have spoken. Oh!